Hi, I'm Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to The Essence of Cool. She's a guitarist, songwriter, producer, and educator. And along with her sister Jean, she is the co-founder of the world's first all-female rock band with a major record deal, Fanny. If you've seen the documentary Fanny the Right to Rock, you'll know I'm talking about the one and only June Millington. Her fans have included David Bowie, Bonnie Raitt, Little Feet's Lowell George, and the great Frank Zappa, to name a few. On this episode, June tells us the story of Fanny, from their humble beginnings as acoustic group The Svelts, to touring the world with Slade, Jethro Tull, and Humble Pie. We'll explore their work with Todd Rundgren on the band's fourth album, June's exit shortly after, and the reunion nearly 50 years later, which spawned the album Fanny Walked the Earth. But let's hear June tell the story. Fasten your seatbelts, and let's get started. June Millington, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Good to be here. It is truly an honor to meet you. You're a living legend. I'm still alive. You see, you are, ergo <laughs> the, the living part. Yeah, that's that's the good part. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like being a living legend. <laughs> How do you feel when people call you a legend or an icon? What does that make you feel? Uh, it just reminds me of all the hard work I did because, you know, I'm really one of those people who came up from behind. I, uh, you know, I worked uh, a long time getting anywhere on lead guitar because, I mean, I was assigned lead guitar when our, after we signed our contract with Reprise, uh, our lead guitar player actually quit the band and I had to take over that chair. And I was uh, stunned. I was truly frightened because I didn't want to be in that point position i knew i was gonna take all the bullets you know I, yeah. didn't want to, I didn't want to be in that exposed position but you know once i said yes which basically i had to agree because we didn't have anyone you know on the horizon i took that job seriously and i think it's um it's important that i'm filipina and was raised in the philippines because they teach you how to study how to work yeah and i did that i just got to work every single day i set up my own curriculum because let's face it there was no place to get this information, except for friends whom I made in L.A. who were amazing. They were great. You know, Lowell George, Kunk Baxter, uh, Elliot Randall, um, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, so for me, it, it just became essentially kind of a meditation. I mean, yes, my sound got bigger and it got more exciting and all that, but I was in the center trying to make sense of it because I had to start off, of course, with the blues licks and all, all the kind of... You know, what you have to go through to make up your own vernacular, you got to kind of get acquainted with the language first. Mm -hmm. So that was that's what makes me think of. I literally came from behind. People have called you fierce mm. in terms of, you know, pushing your agenda and moving, moving Fanny forward, moving your solo career forward. Where does that fierceness come from? Well, my mom was pretty fierce in, in, in pushing it along an agenda, although she did it kind of un, under the radar. She did that for Jean and myself because, uh, you know, my dad was a Yankee from Vermont. He was afraid that no one would kind of take care of us, and so he wasn't for it. But my mom saw immediately how happy that made us, and so that made her super cool. You know, yeah. so she, she essentially... Uh, 
was the wind beneath our wings the whole way. I mean, when we were on the road in Fanny, we had to take Shackley vitamins, okay? We had to take care of our bodies. Right. And, you know, that really panned out. (laughs) (laughs) Now, take me back to the late 60s, early 70s, and your Fanny years. What are some of the moments that still stick out to you, some of the happiest moments? To reference Fanny, you really have to go back to the Svelts. Right. And so that was our first algorithm. You know, I would say some of the happiest morning, uh, excuse me, mornings, yeah, moments, was just simply learning songs and doing them together, even on acoustic guitar, like four girls on acoustic guitar singing Heat Wave. Right. Or Nowhere to Run, which completely blew our minds. Because you could have this force, you know, it had, the songwriting was so robust that mm. it came through no matter what. Um, singing those backup parts that answered the lead in a certain way as in the church, mm-hmm. uh, like church. Um, the first times we realized, gosh, we were actually doing it. We were actually playing together and it held. And then we played at an Air Force base that weekend and it worked because everyone was jumping to the dance floor. And I would say there were many moments in which we walked on stage and mostly guys, but you know, some women because they're following guys, but they would sneer at us. You could hear them kind of nudge each other and make, you know, dirty jokes or whatever. And, uh, but after we played maybe three to six minutes, that had completely changed and they fell in love with us. So realizing that that was going to happen and we could trust it every single time, we're going to win them over. Yeah. That was kind of a thrill. I mean, of course, after we got to LA, you know, there was a lot of stuff that went on that. Really was. I mean, there were moments that I could never really share with anyone, you know, like jamming just with Joel in the basement, uh, excuse me, Lowell, um, Lowell George, and, uh, you know, our song getting bigger and bigger and his showing me, you know, tricks on playing slide, how you can just control one, how you actually have to control one note. And, right. and how do you do that? You know, right. you're sliding around everywhere, but how do you control that one note? Right. You know, so... Those were great moments. They really were. And this was jamming at Fanny Hill, I would guess? Yeah, in the basement. You had quite a parade of stars walk through Fanny Hill. Yeah, they all wanted to be there, believe me. <laughs> well, and, and why do you think that was? Yeah, because we were girls and we could play. It was as simple <laughs> as that. You know, when we met John and, uh, not John and Ringo, uh, George and Ringo in London, because, you know, we recorded at Apple. It was just below the Apple offices. We right. met them on the first day. You know, it was so obvious. And later also when we met uh, Paul a couple of weeks later, and then I met John uh, while my ex-brother-in-law, Earl Slick, was playing on Double Fantasy. So I met him in New York. Hmm. It was just so obvious that they were thrilled to meet women who knew what they were doing, who were writing, who covered their song. We never talked about it, but clearly they loved us. So, you know, I mean, there, there are moments like that when you understand the better the players and the singers and songwriters are, the more actually they give to you because they don't have to protect their position. I mean, what what do those guys have to protect? Nothing. Right. (laughs) Speaking of the Beatles, another song you covered was Badge uh, by George Harrison, Eric Clapton, which came out, if I'm not mistaken, the same year that Cream released it. Did it not? Uh, I'm not sure if it was the same year. I know that I we were listening to that record, and I know that I based my solo on Clapton's, you know, lines. I, I, I kind of amended just a little bit. But, you know, when we heard that song, quite frankly, I don't know how they wrote it, but it was a girl's song. 
It, it, those lyrics were our lyrics. Right. It, they were our experience. Yes, I told you not to blah, 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 play in the park, whatever it was. You know, uh, we understood that, 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 hey, dudes, those are our lyrics. You know, <laughs> move aside and we're going to take the song over. Right. <laughs> Another fan of Fanny was David Bowie. Yeah. And I want to read you a, a little excerpt from something he said, which you know well. Mm-hmm. Um, they, Fanny, were extraordinary. They wrote everything. They played like motherfuckers. They were just colossal and wonderful, and nobody's ever mentioned them. They're important as anyone else who's ever been, ever. It just wasn't their time. Revivify Fanny, and I feel my work is done. Mm-hmm. Has the documentary, and I, do, I might add the documentary that my wife and I watched several times, Fanny the Right to Rock, has the documentary helped fulfill David's vision of revivifying Fanny? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's helping to complete the vision of, of his, because you know, when uh, the director, Bobby Joe Hart, finally, you know, re-got in touch with me after a couple of years after she made a phone call to me. And by the way, that happened because she saw um, a bio on me on the Taylor website. She was looking for a guitar for her daughter. Um, You know, when she contacted me the second time after she saw me on the jumbo screens at the Women's March, (laughs) that's right, I got to call her again. Yeah, you do. Um... Uh, it, you know, her timing in that instance was good because we were just about to record uh, Fanny Walk the Earth. Right. So, uh, you know, I believe that um, that was the beginning of, you know, fulfilling David's vision, but definitely, uh, you know, the uh, documentary as walking that along. Also, the Beat Club footage mm. uh, has, has played a great part because some sort of an algorithm points people to Fanny on YouTube. Okay. And that I works. Get a lot of mail. Yeah, I get a lot of mail. And usually I'll tell you, I can't tell you how many times it's the same with Bobby Joe, the director of Fanny, the right to rock. Um, when she called me, why didn't I ever hear of you before? I, you know, <laughs> blah, 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 on and on, which it's it just outraged that I never heard of you before. Yeah. I never heard you. And, so on one of the comments I saw um, on YouTube for B Club, let's say it was uh, "Ain't That Peculiar," and the first line was "Oh, thank God, real music." The second line was "Oh no, 1971." You know, he was "Oh God, I thought I some group was you know who, whom I never heard of was bursting on the scene with this real music, right?" And he was right. Yeah, like my my wife and myself watching Fanny, I think a lot of people are rediscovering your music, you know, 50 years later. How has that been to to know that you thousands upon thousands more people are now listening to Fanny? It's it's become part of the 21st century musical vocabulary. Yeah. um, Well, I mean, of course, it feels good. I'm somewhat relieved that people are catching on. You know, I feel like for like 50 years, we were holding our breath without realizing it, you know. And uh, to tell you the truth, for a long time, I didn't even think about it. I did not want to think about Fanny. Mm -hmm. I refused to listen to any of our records. Oh, Um, why? I think the disappointment and the crush, you know, crushing weight of everything when I left the band, I was almost dead and it wasn't drugs people just assumed there was drugs but it was yeah. <laughs> my mom thought for sure was going to die 
Um, she was so worried. I think I was down to like 80 pounds. Or so. I couldn't eat. Oh. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sit still. I was still doing my job. I mean, with Fanny, you always, you know, you always put put it through. I mean, we were representing for everybody, so we never could fail. And so yeah. we put it out. But I was dying, and I knew it. I knew it. My problem was I didn't know how to get out of it because I was so young. I had no way to process uh the fact that we had not had a major hit, and so Warner Brothers was losing faith in us. Our management owed so much money. We didn't make money. I didn't have a personal life that was working. Um, you know, it was just too much because I was only like 25, something yeah. like that, right? So, um, Is that I, when you sought out Buddhism? Yeah, I was reading Alan Watts at Al. Since about 69, I was reading all sorts of stuff, you know, um, Zen mind, beginner's mind helped me a lot when I like Fanny, Fanny and I was in uh, Woodstock. So I really did dive into the teachings, and that is essentially what I was looking for What and what saved me and is still, you know, big medicine, of course. But also I got into feminist music, and I got into women's music, and I was playing with the goddess who asked me to play because she was a fan of Fanny. Wow. <laughs> you know, so wow. that Fanny thing worked, you know, pays back dividends in so many ways. I mean... Uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but IMA, to which I am, you know, devoted, passing on my skills or our skills, women who've been in the business and know how to play and know how to take care of themselves, for example, like, I would say just get enough sleep. I mean, number one, get enough sleep, you'll be yeah. a lot less agitated. Yeah. Um, Hard to get so, get sleep when you're that stressed, though, right? Yeah, but let me finish my story. So um, some guy in the late... 90s. We were at IMA West in Bodega, California. And, and, you know, these weird things happened to me. Like, by the skin of my teeth, I saw his email. And this was in the days when somebody's email was made up, so it was gibberish, right? Right. So I just happened to look at my, what is it? It's not trash. It's spam, right? I look at my spam file and I see this. I don't know. I just opened it up. And it starts off... Would you ever consider a donation to IMA, blah, blah, blah? And I really thought it was a Nigerian scam. Right. I kept reading. And he says, because I know you back in the day, I'd like to donate my house in, in L.A. I didn't know this guy was sick. Wow. But, uh, so I wrote back and I said, well, who, who are you? And he said, oh, I used to hang out with you guys at Fanny Hill. I, I had come back from Vietnam and I went with you. And this is what sold me. I went with you to go see the Rolling Stones when Stevie Wonder was opening for them. And at Soundcheck, they played your song, Think About the Children, over the PA. And I knew there was only one person who, who actually was there. Right. <laughs> so he was in, and he did. He died, uh, I don't know, maybe three years later. He donated his house, and it paid for the first renovation of the barn here. So wow. there's a through line to the story of how... Fanny, um, you know, you could say it feeds my life, it feeds my soul. And when I finally got back to listening to Fanny, because of that collection, you know, uh, first time in a long time, and they were sending us outtake after outtake and ma master mix and this, that, and the other thing. And um, I started to listen to it, and I started to go, huh, you know, actually, we were pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom, Jean, Alice, and uh, Toshi Regan, who was a fantastic artist, they were all trying to get me to listen to Fanny for years. I just would not do it. I had bad dreams, you know. I'd 
horrible sounds would come out of the basement. Don't go into the basement kind of a thing. But then after I started to listen and I made a comment to my partner, Anne, who actually runs IMA, um, after we listened to Young and Dumb, I said, you know, I always wanted to play like that. I just didn't know I did. <laughs> That's a real comment. I meant it. And and then she realized what I said. And then I realized and we both started to laugh. But that a truer statement was actually never made. I didn't know I did that. Uh, because I was working so hard, I had the blinders on, you know. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that had to happen for me to dance through the universe and become reunited with Fanny and Fanny Hill. And now when I dream about Fanny Hill, if I do, there are more rooms, there's light, uh, there are people there whom I've not met before, who are, you know, friendly and engaging and all that. So my dreams have completely changed. And that is really what makes a difference for me you know? yeah it wasn't people telling me i should listen to <laughs> no <laughs> i want to talk about the ima in a couple of minutes but i first i just want to gush a little bit because you've worked with some amazing people um bowie i had mentioned and i guess it was gene who uh, sang on fame I yes. didn't know that. That's amazing. <laughs> she was one of a... Of, yes, Robin Clark and Luther Vandross and all those wonderful people, yeah. But you also got to work with Todd Rundgren. I think it was on your third album, he produced you. What, what was that fourth, like? It was the fourth album. Fourth, sorry. Yeah, yeah. we did three with Richard Perry and then... Right. Uh, well, you know, it was a mixed bag. Uh, we knew we weren't going to work with Richard anymore, and there were three main contenders for... Um, uh, for a producer, one of them was Bernie Taupin, whom you know is... Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, who was the other guy? He he co-founded the record company with Leon Russell, who was a huge fan of ours, by the way. Leon, wow. we did a lot of interviews with him. The, the Englishman, Mad Dogs and... and Joe Cocker? Yeah, but he was part of that, and then they started the record company. It was a business. Oh. And he was English himself. Anyway, he wanted to produce us, and Todd wanted to produce us. And Todd came into town. I'm not sure if he came into town just to meet us, but we saw him at the Whiskey Go. And really why we signed to him, because we loved Hello, It's Me. Right. We loved Hello, It's Me. And we thought, huh, you know, if we can get that kind of thing going, well, you know, we'll, maybe we'll have a chance. Yeah. You know, well, and, and he did a good job, but he was also, he was as controlling as Richard, but in a different <laughs> you know. Well, it's, it's interesting because... Um, you know, Todd's produced a, a lot of people, and the comments are kind of hit and miss, depending yeah. on who you talk to. Um, you know, one of the naysayers, of course, was uh, 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 XTC, um, who um, Andy Partridge wasn't crazy about Todd exactly because of that reason. He was a little controlling. And, of course, Andy was very controlling, and it was Andy's band, so he didn't want somebody telling him what to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. But he's had wonderful... Um, Wonderful results. I mean, everyone from here, New York Dolls to uh, Meatloaf. Me oh my gosh! Yeah, the work they did on Bad Out of Hell was incredible. But uh, no, I'm thinking American band, Grand Funk Railroad. Oh, Fantastic yeah. job with them, right through to Daryl Hall and John Oates. Yeah, yeah. Name it, we right? did. We did gigs with Grand Funk Railroad. I remember um, 
our manager saying, yeah, we're doing another gig with the, what, what did he say? The most popular band in the United States who's never had a hit. <laughs> <laughs> I think they never did have like, <laughs> Well, un- until I Todd produced I'm, American, I'm an American band, oh, uh, okay. right? And which became a hit. But yeah. Uh, yeah. There's um, an interesting oh, moment in the uh, documentary uh, where you describe uh, sort of cranking it up at Apple Studios and uh, Richard Perry sort of, uh, taking umbrage with that, but I guess the Apple engineer just take umbrage. He went up to my amp and he turned it down to like two. Wow! Saying I was probably at like seven, eight. You know, that's but, a big that's a big uh, difference. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, <laughs> you're looking for a specific you know character or tone of your guitar. I had it. I wasn't yeah. looking for it. I had it. <laughs> yeah, but you won out in the end, did you not? Well, just because I turned to Jeff and I said, Jeff, how, how did you get your songs with the Beatles? And he didn't even look at Richard. He just looked at me and said, well, George gave me his sound and I mic'd it. <laughs> that was the end of the story right there. I mean, honestly, that's all he said. Right. Not another word for the whole album. Hence, you know, those sounds on Hey Bulldog. <laughs> <laughs> um, some very significant people have sort of become champions of you and Fanny. I'm thinking of Sherry Curry, uh, Bonnie Raitt, uh, you know, people like the, you know, the, the Go-Go's uh, hold you in, in high regard because you kind of gave them their start in terms of breaking through that, you know, that wall of patriarchy and uh, making it okay for women to rock. Well, you know, Bonnie was already uh, releasing her first album when I met her, and she came to a gig in Texas, in Austin. Um, And uh, oddly enough, see, these synchronistic things keep happening to me in a most wonderful way. I had heard her after we finished our soundtrack. She was being played over the speakers Mm -hmm. by the sound guy. And I remember just stopping, and I remember the light on the floor, the guy with the push broom, and just listening, I mean, I was, it, it just stopped everything for me. And I went up to the guy after, like, the whole album played, I guess. And I said, who was that? And he goes, oh, this woman, she's just putting out her first album, Body Rate. And lo and behold, that night between sets, Mark Hammerman, our road manager, knocked on the door, said, somebody wants to see, opened the door. There was Bonnie with, like, two guys, two or three guys. That was how we met her. So we were right. contemporaries. Now... She wasn't yet playing electric. When she went to L.A. on her first tour, and and, uh, L.A. was included, um, she wanted to, you know, well, she stayed at our house, number one. So she stayed downstairs um, by the rehearsal rehearsal space. She was actually in Jean's room, which is a very sweet room. And I introduced her to Lil' George. That's when she went into electric, right? So I I think of her as, um, you know, as a contemporary. Uh, with the rest of the woman, women, you know, I mean, yes, they said that in the film, but I never heard them say anything in press or in interviews before the movie. I will say that I did notice that. Now, I feel like they do mean that sincerely, but they never made a big deal of Fanny. You know, they, they were just trying to break through, you know, the champagne ceiling themselves. Right. right. I do appreciate that they, you know, they give they give us our dues now. They give our, us our honors. But... I felt really lonely, you know, um, uh, uh, what is her name? Queenie Taylor. She was working for Bill Graham, right? Mm-hmm. And she did an intervi- uh, interview. Um, I would say, when was that? It was after I left Fanny and I was back in the Bay Area, late 70s or something. She did an interview where she said, 
that Fanny was a one-trick pony. You know, my heart sank. I never really got over that. That is actually the final axe blow that caused me to just be on the ground and feel like I was just part of the mud. For her to say that, wow. a woman who worked for Bill Graham right. and booked for him and was in the thing, for her to say we were just a one-trick pony, it trivialized us in such a way that guys know how to do so well. Yeah. <laughs> but for a woman to say that, that destroyed me. And that's part of the reason I wouldn't listen to Fanny for a long time. Because, you know, I it's not that I really believed her, but I was ready to be smashed down, I guess. My, my ego was so low. And that was the final blow. I was I was done for. for. Yeah. So until the uh, Fanny album uh, compilation was put out, uh, I just would not listen to it. It was too painful. Yeah. You know? But yeah. uh, with regards to the whole being gay thing, um, as soon as I figured it out and I was, and I, you've not read my book, right? I have not yet. Man no. of a Thousand Bridges. Well, in it, I, I describe how, you know, me, Gene, and Alice were thrashing around, you know, how how we could get around the whole lesbian or bisexual thing. And, uh, you know, and I, I decided to hook up with an old boyfriend. I had a couple of new boyfriends, you know, and, and I got pregnant. I uh, went down to Mexico City, actually, and, and, and got one of the guys, flew me down there, and um, I had an abortion. I came back, and that was it. I, I got together with a woman, Tret Fury, and... I, I felt like, okay, that this is who I am, you know. So I never felt like Alice says in the film that you could not be, you know, lesbian. And I felt like they're just not asking about it. We never, we never said you can't ask about it. I mean, I never did. I would have talked about it, but nobody asked. Right. You know, and I was just happy to have found that home inside myself. That's really important. That was the first part of, okay, I'm home. Because that, that, Word home is in a lot of my songs. Yeah. Know, looking for home. Well, when I found that piece of home, I was happy about it. I, I didn't care who knew. Yeah. One of the wonderful aspects to the documentary uh, that I found really uplifting was when um, you and Jean and Brie reunited uh, to make the record Fanny Walk the Earth, which is, a, which is an album... I, if I'm so bold to say that I've been listening to pretty much nonstop for the last three weeks. There's a song, When We Need Her, that brings me to tears every time the chorus rolls around. It's such a woman positive song and it really makes me hopeful, certainly made my wife hopeful that, uh, that perhaps the patriarchy can be dismantled once and for all. Um, was it like to get together after all those years to record those songs? The easy thing about it was that we felt like we were 17. Yeah. That came about because there was a tribute to me here in Northampton and Jean and Bree were flown out to participate in it with me and a whole bunch of others. And when we hit it here in the barn, the I May Barn to rehearse, 
I was kind of secretly hoping that we would feel 17 again, but I mean, it was there. It was just so plain, you know, it was, we were 17. Yeah. And the joy and the liberated feeling that came with that is, is what actually caused us to, um, to say, hey, yeah, we can do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, We can do this. We can still do it. We're as good as we were back then, you know, and we wrote uh, Not My Monkey, actually at Gene's house, um, the day before the elections when, you know, 45 came on. And that's what Not My Monkey is about. But, you know, I also love um, uh, the song that I wrote. This is basically it's an homage to Jimi Hendrix. Bree's song, which she wrote with her husband, um, you know, I... I got sent the tape, and it was actually past the point that we were choosing songs, but it just was such a great song, and I'm like, oh, my God, we have to do this. And I worked on that solo. I crafted that solo. So it would be, you know, it would be rock, rock pop, but it, it, it wouldn't be just, you know, I just threw out a bunch of shit. You know, like, <laughs> All right, here's a rock tune. Let's put some rock licks. You know, like, like Todd was a you know, Lick 54, Lick 83, you know. I, I, I really wanted to have an, a solo that would honor that song because it's such a great song, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although the song I'm thinking about that's mine is where I go, you rule me. <laughs> I want to talk about your guitar sound in a couple of minutes, but uh, before we get there, I mean, you've been neck deep in music for 50 years. It's even though you left Fanny, you never stopped. That's right. And it eventually led you, and as you alluded to earlier, to the IMA. Tell me about the IMA. Well, the idea of IMA first came to me through voices, or a voice, a particular voice that spoke to me when I was at a meeting at Olivia Records in L.A. in mm -hmm. fall of 76. Uh, and from spring through summer, I played my first tours with Chris Williamson, who... Hopefully you do know of her. Um, amazing songwriter, the goddess of women's music, really, still. Um, and I was at a meeting at Olivia where they were, well, Chris asked me to go. She said, June, you know, they're trying to get more women of color involved. Will you go? Because they, they figured I could, you know, get other women of color in. Anyway, so at this meeting, they were talking about what I felt was kind of uh, airy-fairy stuff, you know, like their goals, what they were going to do, like, they're going to build a recording studio and everybody would get to use it. Well, no, I knew that was never going to happen uh, if you were for profit, right. not a non-profit. Um, and also they said uh, something like, and no one's going to be more popular than the other. It's going to be totally egal egalitarian. And that's when I knew for sure that was not going to come true. Hmm. So other stuff was going to have to happen. And I heard this voice in my head that said, when, what's going to happen with all the young girls who are coming up in the future? I heard it, you know, noted. <laughs> I didn't know how, what to do with it. Ten years later, I'm at Hampshire College, and I'm living with Anne at one of the mods, and now not just one voice, but literally voice says. It would speak to me not only in my, you know, lucid hours, but also in my dreams. So um, I knew that something had to be done, and I didn't know how to do it, and I was in San Francisco hanging out uh with uh, Angela Davis, or maybe she came to a gig or something. Hey, we were talking afterwards, and I told her about these voices, and she looked at me, she said, well, get going. I'm like, what? Not me. Not me. I just hear that the voice is talking to me. I can't, I don't know how to do that. And she said, well, June, they're talking to you. Get going. Call my <laughs> sister. Here's her number. She's a lawyer. 
And uh, and I spoke to Anne about it, of course, and I, I didn't know that she'd always wanted to start some sort of an alternative education uh, you know, system, because what we operate on here is completely different from the patriarchy. I mean, most of the decisions actually do come from the kitchen. You know, that's a whole other thing. She, she has a TEDx talk uh, called Leading from the Kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's what IMA is about. IMA is trying to constantly clean ourselves so we're not presenting a hologram that's like, you know, untrue. And uh, we tried for the first 20 years or so to not grow too fast because I saw a lot of institutes or bookstores or coffee sh shops or places to play that were feminist, but they imploded under the weight of their own visions, uh, right? Too much, right. too much, too much, too fast. So we try to make sure that... <laughs> As we were growing this thing, it didn't just, just disappear in the sun, you know? Yeah. We did that. And uh, when we bought this property in 2001, we closed right before 9-11. Wow, all of a sudden, oh, certain things could happen because we owned it. We could start our rock and roll girls camps. We started the next year, the next summer. So that's basically the story of IMA. We're passing this all on to future generations. You know, uh, the property, our equipment, our IMA living archives, our photos, our, you know, my book, everything gets passed on. Right. They know it. These girls will come to camp. They know it. Right. What do you hope for uh, through the IMA? What do you hope its, uh, its biggest achievement is? Well, it's already happening. You know, these girls are, are getting woken up. Right. They're coming in. Pretty, pretty awake already to certain things, but you know when you teach music, you have an opportunity to to teach actually the lessons of life, and that's what it's already happening. And we have girls who are graduating from college, and there it's a new sorority. It's like you know Fanny was our own sorority, but it was only four, six, eight girls. You know whoever came in and out, but we were a sorority with amps and a drum set and a PA. <laughs> Now we have that and more here, and we have many, many girls come through. So already they know each other, they start bands, they talk to each other, they support each other, you know, so it's already happening. Just more of that, which I know is going to continue to happen. You right. know, it's a success. One of the other exciting things that's happened to you recently is you've released an, a new solo album called Snapshots. Yeah. Tell me how that came to be. Uh, you know, I'm always kind of fiddling around with songs, and, and uh, the thing about the, our camps is that a lot of stuff gets interrupted as I'm in the middle of it. So, so maybe I started to write a song or maybe, maybe started to record it and, you know, had to drop it. But also, um, you know, I'm, I was writing my book and I'm writing my second book right now. So there are certain projects that just have to stop and wait for what's happening at IMA to happen. Right. That being said... Okay, now comes COVID. And Lee was sheltering in place here for about a year and a half. And his dad, Earl Slick, came for about a year. Right. ISO A in the studios was his bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I was doing live streams every week, in which I kind of forced them to be involved. And also Naya Kete, who, is, uh, who Lee met here, and his girlfriend. So... Um, there was like a musical, uh, you know, there was sort of like a wave that we were riding while we were doing these live streams and just living our lives and, you know, the re-election or the election of Biden, etc. Right. And so we were doing a lot of music together and living together. And 
my songs started to sort of grow. I'd say, oh, maybe we could work on, you know, blah, 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 and we would. And there were three songs that were written right after the insurrection that week. Uh, I canceled the live stream. I said, no, I can't do this because I feel like my head's exploding. And those three songs actually were recorded from scratch. And I don't think any one of them took more than two takes. Right. You know, I mean, Slick's a pro, you know, that's how I met John Lennon, you know, is in the band. So um, we did those three songs and they're, they're towards the top. And the very first song is related to the cover, which I love that cover. It's, you know, I don't even know who took it. I ran into it someplace in my files. And that was um, written in Woodstock. I lived in Woodstock from like, oh, I'd say... 74 to 79 off and on oh, okay so woodstock is near and dear to my heart i lived in a house that the uh, monks had lived in uh, while they were building their monastery at the top of mead mountain i moved into that house and in fact we gene and i and a, and a band rehearsed ladies on the stage there a lot of stuff happened in that house um so I found that it was a tape. I drafted it on to dad and then blah, blah, blah. You know, I sent it to our mastering engineer and he made it so that it would somewhat mix in. And that's why I put it in at the top because it relates to the cover. Plus that's June Millington. What? She's on a drum set. You know, I'm barely clothed. I mean, obviously I was going to go outside in the snow because I have my boots on, but I got waylaid by the drums. (laughs) I love drums. So, um, so it's a compilation of, and plus it has a, a song that I recorded as a demo with Richard, you know, the Ballad of Fanny. It's so true. Right. That's actually, and no one was actually interested in it at the time. And, you know, I, I didn't push it because, I mean, we were still getting the, the word of Fanny out there in what whatever way we could or did. And so it's sad. I found it one day. I'm like, my God, this sounds good. <laughs> and it's true. It's all true. So that got thrown in there along with songs that I wrote, as I said, um, after the insurrection and through the years here at IMA. And a lot of the girls are involved in singing or, you know, being an inspiration. Some of their voices are came through in the song or they're singing along. So it's, you know, it's a really nice collection. I'm, I'm extremely still excited and proud. Yeah. 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 I'm, a, of course, a massive fan of Slicky. Mm. Um, uh, I woke up to his playing uh, from David Live back in 1974 yeah. uh, and have, uh, you know, been listening to whatever he works on ever since. Yeah. And I think he's tremendous. Uh, you were mentioning writing a song uh, because of the insurrection. One of those, I think, was Eagle to the Moon. Yeah, well, I, that wasn't really, that was my vacation song. Okay. The other okay. two were intense and re- directly related, and I just that Eagle to the Moon just as that I was just taking a vacation. <laughs> well, well, I bring up Eagle to the Moon for um, a, another reason. Number one, I think it's got a real Bonnie Raitt feel to mm-hmm. it. Do you do you think that? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and the other is you have such a distinctive muscly guitar sound. I absolutely love it. But you know, you're trading off licks with Slicky, and it's hard to tell who's playing what. Exactly right. Yeah, mm-hmm. because by that, 
you know, we're both we both know how to, how to do it, right? Right. So that that was only two takes. We, I mean, really. That was, and and I thought we were listening to the first one. We were actually listening to the second. I fell in love with the second, although I thought the first, you know, whatever. But you know, part of the reason why you can't really tell is because we were playing together, and we were just we weren't thinking about it. We were just you know we were in the song. We were in the orb. Right. And I love that about those sessions. I think. I mean, I I wrote those songs, you know, right after the insurrection, and I started chemo. In February, so right. in those few weeks, uh, we played those songs uh, during a live stream, and I said, you know, maybe we should record those songs before I start my chemo. So we agreed to do it, and we we just set up and did it, you know. Wow. And I love that. I love you can hear like, you know, it's kind of those are kind of masterpieces because of all the experience that went in. You know, Gene meant. Slick right after they did Station to Station. Oh. And David in L.A. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know who Slick was. I wasn't listening to David, to tell you the truth. You know, okay. He, he wrote us a fan letter with his, sent us his first album, which nobody kept, of course. But, oh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he really was a fan. And, um, you know, when she told me she was dating this guy, and she kept saying, you know, he's a really good guitar player, and I just... You know, I was kind of, I guess I was moving on in the women's music or whatever. Um, I didn't really listen too much. But the fact that she said he was good, I believed her. (laughs) (laughs) That was my recommendation. He's really good, you know. (laughs) But, you know, she also turned me on to so much, like the meters, you know. And Judy Sills, she turned me on to. And uh, she saw her at, at the Troubadour and... Carly Sama, you're so vain. Not you're so vain. Uh, Richard recorded that with her, but um, yeah. uh, these are the good old days, right? Jean loved that tune. So she would turn me on to things all the time. And every time she said th- something was good, it was good. I would listen to her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when she said Slick was good, yeah. And like five months later, they got married, you know. <laughs> so yeah. What was it like to be in the studio with, uh, you were saying that, you know, it was during... Um, the lockdown and uh slicky was living there part-time and uh, your, no, your full nephew full-time hmm? time. Full time. okay and um uh, your nephew lee was also there what was it like sort of working and playing with family oh well you just said the word i mean family that's that's it i mean chris has always told me that the reason why i do ima is because i am gathering the family and I think that is true. Is that is what I'm looking for? Right. Um, you know, but the family in the Philippines that I was born into was kind of fractured. I mean, it was very, very strong, but it's also fractured in the way that the entire nation was PTSD, including my dad and my mom. Yeah. All the nation was PTSD. Yeah. And I didn't know where I was. I, I remember being really confused. I could still see where, you know, whoever had dropped bombs in, in Manila. I could see, still see those, you yeah. know. So um, having family and having the expertise, you know, I mean, basically Gene and I trained Lee mm-hmm. in the ways of the studio because he, his first studio sessions were with us at IMA West. And our we had a much more modest studio, but we did a lot of great stuff. Right. And... Um, so to be at home and to be playing with family and to have family whom you trust so much. I mean, we didn't really have to discuss like when right before we did uh, 
too close to the bone. I, I said, oh, so this is how, you know, we play this like two weeks ago, a live stream, and it goes, oh, no, just tell me the key. Okay, that was all, <laughs> okay, I said, A minor, I guess, you know, and we hit it, and, you know, he's doing that kind of Keith Richards guitar part, like a, it just, you know, he just knew to do that, and I could riff against him. We didn't talk about it. We didn't practice right. it. We just started to do it. Right. So that's what it feels like. It's kind of hard to explain, you know, or eagle to the moon. I, I just said, okay, you take the first solo, I'll take the second. And that's why I said, okay, slick. You know, I, I said it. Everything you hear on that record was actually live. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I wasn't trying to impress anybody or I was just like trying to keep the session going. Yeah. But if you, if you know how to give directives while you're recording, which I do, you can keep it going and, and keep and, and actually take the energy in a, wherever you want it to go. So right. riding a spectacular horse, actually. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, I, I watch a lot of documentaries, particularly since Bowie's death uh, in 2016, um, about how he made records and how he hired who he hired. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was Slicky who said, you know, he hired you because he liked what you did. Mm -hmm. And he didn't really tell you to do much because he knew what to expect from you, which I assume is exactly what happened with you in the studio with, with her. Totally. totally. Yeah. Don't try to tell Slick what to do. Right. Uh, that ain't going to work out because he's so much better. <laughs> I mean, if you don't realize that, you should not have him on your side. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. Sales of Snapshot uh, go directly, the, the proceeds go directly to funding IMA, uh, yeah, more programs. Everything I do. And I guess the book, too, Land of a Thousand Bridges, yeah. oh, also. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, work I'm working on the second one now. I'm on the 13th chapter, I think. Yeah. Or 17th, I forget, you know. Yeah. Before camps, I was really rocking on the book, and then camps started, so it'll pick up again in the fall. Just I, before, hope, I hope it's done in a year. Yeah. So, yeah. Just before we end this section, I just want to quickly ask about Jean. How's she doing? Well, I mean, to my mind, she's doing well. Uh, she's still struggling with the fact that she can't move her left side. I mean, she feels it. Um so that's kind of, you know, she dreams about being able to play and walk and all stride, you know. Um, so that's a little bit, you know, it's disconcerting for her. But, hey, you know what? She loves her grandchildren. They they live on the same property. And, um, you know, she's involved in interviews. And there's a, a Facebook coming out in which for which she was interviewed. So she's actually still quite active, mm -hmm. but nothing like she was before. So that's a little bit frustrating for her. She would love to be able to pick up the bass and play. Yeah. But hey, but she's doing the work, and that's all we can ask for. That's why I say she's doing well. Yeah. You know? But you have done a couple of uh, small performances where she's been singing. Lee's yeah. played bass, right? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So we can still do it. Yeah. On that note, I want to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about one of, one of your picks of The Essence of Cool, Wayne Shorter. So <laughs> stick with us. We'll be right back. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you liked and even what you didn't like. Have you got a show or guest idea? Well, drop us a line. Our email addy is info at theessenceofcool.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now let's get back to the show. And we're back with June Millington, 
of Fanny, Fanny Walk the Earth on the Essence of Cool. We're going to talk about your first pick. And i be completely honest, I didn't know a heck of a lot about Wayne Shorter. I have learned a little bit since you mentioned you wanted to talk about him. Let me just read a little bit here. Jazz saxophonist is celebrated for his 70-plus years as a composer and performer, although he recently left the world of performance and is focusing on uh, composition. He's won multiple Grammys, Polar Music Prize, Kennedy Center Honors Award, um, played with Art Blakey, Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and formed one of the most influential jazz fusion ensembles, Weather Report. How did you first hear of Wayne Shorter? You know, his name has always been around. I never really listened to Wayne Shorter's music per se, but sometime in the 70s, um, after I left Fanny, I was living in Woodstock and I heard this song with Milton Nascimento doing the vocal. I didn't even know it was a Wayne Shorter album, off a Wayne Shorter album. And the melody was, I mean, who, who gives a guy like that Practically the whole song. I mean, Wayne just played a little sax, but this ethereal melody goes do da 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 do ba boo ba 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 da 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 do da do da 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 da. I'm like, what? That's straight from the gods. I mean, that's not a song. That is sacred music, right? It's it's on a Wayne Shorter album, so. In fact, I played that at the beginning of our recording camps and when we're listening to sounds, I played that as an example of how you draw in the evocative. It's so incredible. Right. So I noticed that, that sometime in the, you know, let's say 77, 78. I knew, I, I guess I kind of knew he'd been in Weather Report, but I didn't really pay attention, you know. But then, um, and then when, I don't know if you, uh, knew this, but his wife died in the TWA crash. Yeah, the New York TWA, which they never knew what what brought that plane down. Right, and he didn't he didn't really talk that much about it. I, I kind of noticed that. I noticed his name was in the mix, and um, gosh, sometime around uh, two thousand four, I think he started to appear in the New York Times with somebody just having conversation. He didn't want to talk about himself or his music. I get it. I mean, you know. He's already had so many questions about Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, all those, the greats that he played with, which I didn't really, I was not really in tune with. But um, he had these conversations uh, with a journalist, I forget his name, but in the New York Times, a whole page, and they're just talking about music and they're listening to something. I'm like, God, this guy is really deep. He doesn't say anything that's not deep. Right. You know? Um. In fact, I started to watch a documentary on him last night, and I just was so blown away by everything he had to say. You know, he, in one part, he talked about, well, you know, the type, he didn't say the type of music that we play, but he got into, you know, when, I guess, when we do our music or we collaborate, we're heading for the unknown. Right. And when you do a record, you're supposed to be, thinking about, you know, everything, all the massive promo and how you're going to get people into it. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. Down this route where you're just trying to tie in with every everybody, whereas he's saying, you know, when we do concerts, every musician has to pick up their courage and go into uh, the unknown, the mystery, the potential. And, and, and he's stopping between each. Yeah. 
you know, and they're all delicious phrases, what he's saying. I, also, he's a Buddhist and he's been practicing for a long time. So I know what he's talking about, but I don't say it like he does. And I don't say it, I don't play it. I mean, actually, I don't know how to be that free. Yeah. That's what's so cool about it. He is, he studied, yes, he studied, grew up in Newark, I think it was, and he joined the army and was sent wherever, but he played uh, all during World was it during World War II, the Vietnam War? Anyway, he studied, he was in his armed services, but he was always um, always going for that, whatever it is, nobody can quite pin it down. They just say he's the best, There's he's won so many Grammys, this, that, and the other thing, and he gets closest to it by saying, oh, well, we just have to pick up our courage and, and play that which is indicated to us or that we hear or be you know whatever he says i can't say it because he's doing it so to me that's incredibly cool Uh, he's a mystery to me this guy is a mystery who needs to be investigated constantly (laughs) yeah i think i watched uh uh, the same documentary or maybe he's he's repeated the same thing in in other documentaries but he talks a lot about having courage and he reminds me a lot of um last episode or last season i talked to um wonderful americana singer lynn hansen about keith jarrett and keith and and wayne are in kind of a similar absolutely i mean the similar mindset right where it, they talk about having the courage to allow yourself to be free keith uh talked about not coming to a performance prepared he would completely empty his mind and let the muse tell him what to do and he said the most important thing was not not to let my hands get in the way he's a piano player right (laughs) yeah and and a lot of people i mean keith jared is not mentioned so much anymore but he definitely was a huge influence in the uh definitely in the 70s and before that as well Mm, yeah um you had mentioned he's a practicing buddhist um and he, uh, as I said, like Keith Jarrett, often alludes to getting outside yourself as a as a performer. Um, one of this, one of the interviews that I saw, the pianist in his quartet, Daniel Perez, uh, alludes to um, or talked about Wayne pushing him to visualize the music differently, which led him to having an out of body experience while he was playing, literally seeing himself from above, watching him play, and it remind me a lot of uh, Miles Davis, uh, where he talked talked about, uh, and I think Gawain has used this expression too, flying while you're performing. What is that experience like as a performer when you're flying? Well, f- flying is the first part of it. <laughs> okay. Disappearing is the goal. Oh. See? I was having a conversation with another artist once, and she asked me about what was my best moment. And I do get asked that regularly. And I looked at her and I said, well, I don't know, because my best moments are when I disappear. And she laughed and she totally agreed, but I don't think she'd ever said that. Right. You know, so that's where I'm headed when when I'm playing. If I can get to a new place within the structure or the architecture of my own song or whatever it is that we're playing, if I can get into enough and go a little beyond, then I do disappear. And that's what I'm looking for. Really, It's the best experience of all. Right. Um, I find Wayne, again, a lot like Keith Jarrett, um, a lot like uh, 
Miles Davis, and in some respects, a lot like David Bowie, in that he seems every sort of, he's had a number of eras, I guess, depending on who he's playing with and what he's, what type of genre of jazz he's playing at the time. But he tends to write new musical language. He breaks rules. Mm -hmm. How important is it to be forging new territory in music? Well, I think that's exactly the goal that everyone has, you know, so it's, yeah, it's super important. Now, whether or not you're able to <clears throat> get around the rules that you're, you know, what you're supposed to be paying attention to. <laughs> right. For example, you're playing blues. Well, there's Delta blues, there's blues from Texas and so on, you know, uh, people get used to playing those licks and they, they can't get away from playing that over everything, you know. So I feel like really the, the noble goal is to get past that and find your own licks. Unfortunately, I had, I had people who gave me that advice in L.A., not before L.A. too much because we were just trying to learn, you know, so we were mm-hmm. learning songs just like the record. But when I got the advice, you know, you can start to find your, your own stuff. Like forget uh, about, you know, the form really that you're, that you're learning and try to find your own stuff. And that has... That is actually how I approach playing guitar. I do not want to do stock licks. I mean, yes, of course, everything's derivative, you know. But I try to find my own sounds and I try to slow it down. I love to do uh, lines that I can sing along with. Right. You know, Uh, I feel like that's really important for me, which means I got to slow everything down. (laughs) When you slow everything down, you got to consider it a lot more. Because you're playing a lot of notes, heck, maybe people don't even stand, understand what you're saying, but they go, oh, yeah, she's really good. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even know what you're saying. <laughs> well, um, you know, there are levels to all this. And, and once you start to understand the concept of going beyond the form into your own thing, it doesn't matter how far from the form you are, that it's your own. I think that's what's important, and that's what we're all headed for. Right. We all want to disappear, don't we? Yeah, indeed. indeed. <laughs> um, he was asked once what his favorite composition was, mm. and he responded, the next one. Yeah, that's right. Is that, I mean, do you feel the same? Is it, and it's, it's sort of always, music is always in pursuit of your next big thing. Do you ever stop yeah, and take... Well, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be big. It can be small. It can okay. just be like a certain little thing that you just did and you noticed it and you realized, yeah, I can do that again. Right. Even a comma in the music, right? Right. <laughs> that's a thing. That's a thing. You know, that's phrasing. Right. So, um, you know, big and small, you know, you're constantly going out of yourself, searching for the big unknown, and then you got to go back into what you know. <laughs> The in-breath and the out-breath of that is that that's what makes the pursuit so excellent. Right. Because it's never going to end. Oh, yeah. that's delicious, right? Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you at the very beginning of this segment is, what is your definition of cool? I, to me, cool is like, you can't figure out really what they're doing. Right. You know, there's something so mysterious that they got to the center of the mystery. That is really cool. So you said that, and the first person I thought of was Philip Glass. Um, ah, yeah. 
Now that now that's cool. Um, we're going to take uh, a little break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about your final two picks, the Beatles and <laughs> Laura Nero. Yeah. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to The Essence of Cool. As an independent podcast, we rely wholly and completely on support of listeners like you. If you like what you hear, please help keep us on the air and throw a few bucks in our electronic tip jar. You can find it on the front page of our website, theessenceofcool.com. We truly appreciate your help. Now let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. On the essence of cool, we're talking to June Millington of Fanny and Fanny Walks the Earth, and we're about to talk uh, to talk about her final picks of the essence of cool: the Beatles and Laura Nero. I'm going to start with the Beatles. Um, I got to tell you that it's interesting that I've done um, about 15, 16 episodes of this this show so far, and this is the first time somebody has picked the Beatles which is to me very surprising because they're usually on everyone's lips. Virtually everyone I've talked to has mentioned the Beatles. Uh, one of the folks picked George Harrison to talk about so uh, singly, but nobody's ever talked about the Beatles uh, as a group. Why did you choose the Beatles as the essence of cool? You know, the when we first noticed the Beatles, we were in high school. I mean, you could not notice them. Right. And their first album cover... We would stare at it for like hours. How cool is that? Yeah. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know who they were. However, they were coming at us with great velocity. Right. More velocity, really, than any other band ever has ever in time. We all know this. How cool is that, right? And then they started to unfold with their phenomenal creativity. They decided to stop going on the road and then what they produced in the studio. I mean, they just never stopped. And I know a lot of that was Paul, you know, egging them all on. But they did it together. Yeah. And, um, you know, how could, how could you not think of them as incredibly cool when, you know, they wrote songs like, uh, I'm fixing a hole where the rain comes in. I mean, what? What? Right. <laughs> right. And help, I need somebody. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Every single time they blew our minds, that was so cool. I mean, because they did it regularly. Mm -hmm. They did it regularly. And nobody could believe it. They changed the, the face of songwriting, of music, of how you would get out there. And, you know, and they worked hard. They, they, they yeah. were not slackers. They were not slackers. Yeah. They were certainly the first band to have such a massive worldwide impact. I mean, I know Elvis was big, but the Beatles, such an impact around the world. I'm seven years old in grade two, my class picture, I'm playing air guitar to She Loves You. Mm. So there you go. Yeah. What was do you what was the first song you heard? Do you remember? I think it had to be She Loves You. Right. I mean, how I first heard about the Beatles was I was in choir in high school, and the girl next to me says, "Hey, did you did you see that group on Ed Sullivan last weekend? You know, the guys with the long hair." And I'm like, "I hadn't heard about them." She said, "Well, they're going to be on again this weekend, so make sure you watch it." And you know, by some, I don't know if everybody else heard, but the entire family, including our mom and dad, 
we're in front of the TV watching. Right. Yeah. You know, and they never stopped from there. We needed them. I mean, uh, John Kennedy had been killed. The, the nation was in a funk. The world, I think, was in a funk also. So it cheered us all up and it just kept going, right? It just kept cheering us up. Yeah. And yeah. blowing our minds, P.S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it was great to see the three-part documentary that Peter Jackson put out, Get Back, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, for so long, the image we had of that period of the Beatles was born out of the previous documentary that came out in 1970, Let It Be, which painted a pretty dark picture of them. Mm -hmm. But in Get Back, we see that they're a true family and they're fun-loving and they get along and they play around with each other. And they, yeah, they have their down moments, but as families do, they bounce back. What was your your overall opinion after seeing the, the documentary? Well, I could see how uh, those months, or I don't know if it added up to a year or so, uh, they went over to the Reaperbond, what, twice or three times? I could see how those zany days and learning all those songs and kind of just exploding. Right. That was what I saw. Um, of course, I, you know, we could see them creating their... I, I was amazed the way that Paul would kind of play guitar on bass while he was writing, Right. Right. And also, I realized when they moved into that smaller space, I was like, that looks really familiar. Well, that was where they built Apple Studios. That's where we We were. guys, that's right. <laughs> Working with the same engineer. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, I, what I didn't like was a lot of the fast cuts. Uh, right. And, and I'm sure it's because he wanted to get as many of those songs in that they would just break into, right? He, he never really stuck with a song except when they got to the end. Right. Uh, that was kind of frustrating for me, but I'm, you know, but I got, I, I was watching them really as, as kids, and I think I've read everything about every book about the Beatles that has ever been written. So, um, I know how important. I mean, you know, all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that all happened in Amsterdam. Oh no, not not Amsterdam. Where was it? In Hamburg. Yeah, Hamburg. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, they were pretty wild there. They they got it all out there, and, yeah. and they, they were just referencing back in those days, you know. They loved music. They their repertoire that they knew was incredible. Right. And you know, I I remember hearing about how John, when cassettes were invented, he loved it because then he could just take that small cassette to every room he was in and listen to all the music that he was listening to all the time, which was a lot of it was oldies. Right. You know. Right. I mean, they made money into remade it into a hit. You know. Yeah. Now, back in the pre-Sveltz days when you and Gene are playing uh, acoustically, were you were you playing any Beatles songs? Well, I mean, we were playing Hootenanny, so that was before the Beatles. Okay. Um, what was the first song that... Oh, I know. The first song that we actually played that was by the Beatles was No Reply. Okay. And it's Sveltz. We loved that song. Right. So we got the harmonies. It was a mid-tempo, right? Mm-hmm. You could actually do it. <laughs> when... Uh, uh, let me see. Got a good reason. Uh, we couldn't really do that lick. When was that? 60, must have been 65, 66. Yep, about that. Yep. We couldn't really quite do that lick. So, you know, that's, we were just really trying to get a grip on how do you do this stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, how, I mean, much less how do you create it? I mean, what? But how to do it? Um, uh, drive my car. Boom. 
Well, we couldn't do that, so we couldn't learn that song. I, I couldn't do it. Well, spe and speaking about um, song structure and song creation, did you draw from them any inspiration in terms of your own songwriting? Oh, yes. That was always the goal, to write something e even closer to the periphery that the light, the Beatles were. <laughs> right. <laughs> star, man. Right. <laughs> That light which just came beaming at you. It was incredible. Yeah. So I mean, there's so much that's cool about them. How did how did they do um, you know, uh Sergeant Pepper? I mean, my first acid trip really was Sergeant Pepper. Right. <laughs> and uh how did they do that? I had no idea how they did that. You I know? still and, don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just an incredible, you know, burst, burst. Yeah. That uh, was worth it. <laughs> you said you got to meet, uh, was it George and Ringo? They were the first ones, yeah. At Apple, the first day we went to Apple, we went upstairs to uh, their offices. And what's that? I, I was talking to uh, uh, the great drummer Randy Cook yesterday um, about him working with Ringo Starr and what it was like to be, because he, he's a drummer, Ringo and him actually played drums together on a tour with Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics. Mm. And, uh, it, you know, what a kick that was. But what was it like to meet the Beatles? What was it like? They were really depressed, to, quite frankly. They were not in the least bit talkative or brilliant. They were nice, but they were really depressed. I mean, because we would have dinner over at um, uh, the guy who was their their um, promo man, the Fifth Beatle, um, Derek Taylor. Derek Taylor, right? Yeah, so we would go to Derek's house for Sunday dinner, and there they would be, and they were depressed. So. And this would have been what year? 71? Yeah. Yeah. That was a tough year for them. Very, yeah. very tough. They were depressed that the Beatles weren't together. Yeah. They missed each other. How yeah. how did you take the Beatles breaking up? You know, I, I think just like everybody else, I just couldn't believe it. You know, how was that going to be? Like, not the next single, not the next album? Right. How? You know, because... To me, the albums I waited for were the Beatles and Stevie. Well, thank God Stevie kept going. Yeah. At least we had still had him. Yeah. You know? But the output that they that they did, it was just those two artists uh, really made an imprint because it was just so constant. You were always waiting for the next great, amazing. You knew it was going to be amazing. I hate to ask it because it's so 16, but did you have a favorite Beatle? <laughs> yeah, Paul. Yeah. Paul, for sure. Why? Because he was so cute. <laughs> they were all really good, but man, he was so cute. And he played up to the camera. He knew how to do it. Yeah, he sure oh. did. Still does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. He knows how to do it. So you're growing up in California in the 60s. The Beatles come on the scene. But I guess California in those days is is all about surf music. It was all about the Beach Boys. Come on, right? Exactly. I mean, the Beach Boys were were actually our first homies who who we fell in love with. You know? So was there a backlash in California when the Beatles came stormed onto the scene and sort of took so. the limelight away from Beach Boys? No, I don't think so because you know you just you couldn't help but fall in love with them and with every song that they did. You just had to fall in love with it. You know, right. you couldn't resist it. I mean, I know parents were going, "Oh, what's that sound?" You know. But the kids? Oh no, we knew, we knew what was that. The only thing that maybe might have come close for me was also Jimi Hendrix because right. are you experienced? Oh, I mean the first three or four albums, but 
you know, he was definitely in the lexicon of what was in the air. And we were all breathing in that air. And, you know, I don't think we really quite knew how special those times were that that wasn't going to continue, you know, really. Yeah. All that music and all these new sounds. And it was an incredibly special time. And I still feel excited and enervated by it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get to meet Jimi Hendrix? No. No. I saw him about three or four times. I actually saw him with Lowell once down in the L.A. area. But um, no, I never got a chance to meet him. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. He's still affecting me now. Oh, and so many people. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One of the things they did is they they changed how a lot of music was written in the 60s. I mean, if you think about the 60s, especially in, in the States, I mean, be uh, the the Beach Boys are the exception. So much of the music that we heard on on Top Forty Radio or AM Radio was from the Brill Building. You know, it was it was basically it was a business. The Beatles come along and change that. You know, we can write our own damn songs. Thank you very much. Did that change your perception of writing music? Yeah, and and. You know, now, I mean, for then it was incredible. It was such a switch and what the right, they, they wrote that, they wrote that, they kept writing, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it changed the arc of the songwriting slash publishing business because now everyone figures you got to write your own song or you, it's not worth it really or something like that. There's, a, there's an onus against uh, covering other songwriters. Right. You know, Burt Backrack and Hal David, they wrote hits for, you know, many people. And that kind of got, went out of phase. You know, Frank Sinatra did, had his favorite songwriters, etc. But all of a sudden, the songwriting business was not as lucrative, you know. Yeah. And sort of in the same way that the internet has changed, um, you know, taken the sheen off of, hearing somebody special because there's so many people who consider they're special and they're putting yeah. it out there and this is the best and the next hit and that this and the other thing um did you ever read the article or this short book that uh, frank zappa wrote where he's talking about how and i knew these guys i met these guys i mean the music business was started by the mafia i mean you do know that right no so, i didn't know that oh yeah absolutely that's why all the payola and all that so oh. yeah Frank Zappa, who was a friend of mine, because he wanted to produce Fatty, but he got there a little too late. Oh, really? Yeah, he was a great guy. He was a great guy. So there was there was one section that I've seen quoted numerous times in which he says, you know, in the old days, you'd have this guitar, uh, excuse me, you'd have this cigar chomping guy in the office and, uh, you know, who co-owned a record company or owned it or whatever. And you'd have these A&R guys go and play a song and say, what do you think? Do you think this will be hit? And the guy goes, I don't know. Why don't you just put it out and see? That's right. <laughs> well, that works just as well as having, you know, your whole strata of managers and counselors and lawyers and then the other. Nobody knows what's going to hit. Right. Because it's it's what the audience falls in love with. There's no replacing that. You cannot force you cannot force someone to fall in love with a song. Yeah. You can't. True it can't enough. be done. You can True spend enough. as much money as you want, but if the public is ready for it, they're gonna freak out. They're gonna love it. You know, it's like where did that come from? <laughs> but I love that story that Frank uh, told, and I and I've repeated it 
a number of times because it's absolutely true. You know, a guitar, uh, a cigar chomping guy in in a small office in L.A. or wherever is just as much an expert as the cadre that surrounds. Uh, you know, putting out a record now. But I think to further that thought, part of his point, too, was that those cigar-chomping older guys Mm -hmm. were willing to take chances on songs, whereas this new elite, the young folks, are commodifying uh, music, and they don't want to take chances. They just want a sure thing. Yeah, but the fact is, every time you put a record, it's a chance. It's just because you cannot force people to fall in love with a song. It's just as simple as that. Yeah, that's why it's a chance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to wrap up our conversation about the Beatles by asking you, how do you think that the Beatles are the essence of cool? What is it about them? Well, I mean, you just couldn't figure it out how they did it. Right. And they would take you up into the clouds and the stars and the center of the universe, deep into the earth. But how? How? How did they do that? And um, nobody ever knew. I don't think outside of their circle. We just got it. We just got what they put out, and we appreciate it so much. So that's how they're cool. Plus, they were also cute. Yeah. And let's don't forget that. I mean, that is a big part of the allure. Oh, for sure. For <laughs> sure. I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time. And this has been a real thrill for me. The uh, documentary, uh, Fanny the Right to Rock, and I guess most of the original Fanny albums can be purchased on fannyrocks.com. Is that correct? Yeah, that's Alice's site. And, okay. uh, you know, there are a few other companies that are putting out whatever, but right. that's that's where you can pretty much get yeah. And Snapshots, uh, your me. book, Land of a Thousand Bridges, can be yes. purchased on the IMA site? Yes, just go yeah. to ima.org, okay. and uh, you'll, you'll see. They're pop-downs. Thank you so very much for this time. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, you're so welcome. Okay. My sincere thanks to June for beaming in from Massachusetts to chat with me for nearly two hours. For more information, to order June's book, or to pick up her latest album snapshots, check out her website, ima.org. Or for the Fanny Back Catalog, visit fannyrocks.com. Until next time, I'm Bernard Fraser saying please support local independent artists.